Racism is wrong. Hate can't be accepted. Just not being, quote, racist is not enough to propel change. In order to help create change, we have to listen, work to comprehend, and accept the fact that those in privileged positions can never understand what diverse people go through. AT Chat hasn't put a statement out because we needed to listen and learn from people that experience racism on a potentially daily basis. We denounce any form of racism or hate, not only within the athletic training community, but in the world in general. We will do more to help be a part of the changes that is needed to increase equality and work with our diverse professionals to succeed and feel safe while doing so. This roundtable discussion on race and athletic training is a starting point, and we can't thank Crystal, Ryan, Mercedes, Andrew, Brandon, Susan, Mike, and Austin enough for being a part of the conversation and education. We held this roundtable to listen, learn, and find opportunities to try and make things better. Black Lives Matter, racism, and hate are still a problem. We need to do better and look forward to the opportunities to continue the conversation and do our part to help make that change. Please listen to this episode. It was very powerful for us. There's a lot of good information. We look forward to having follow-up conversations with each of these guests if they are willing to do so. And please also check out athletictrainingchat.com, specifically this link, as there is a lot of resources uh, that we found and that our guests shared with us that we think are important for everybody to read, to think about, and work on improving their own education when it comes to these issues. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. On this one, we have a roundtable uh, talking to a variety um, of people across the country, um, found somewhere on the West Coast, uh, some all the way out on the East Coast, and we're here right in the Midwest. Um, if we were talking before, the weather can't decide what it's going to do here, so hopefully that's um, behaving better for other people. I've heard it's hot other places in the country currently, but this episode we I'm really looking forward to um, because... I think it's going to be unbelievably informative. Uh, there's a lot I want to take away from it personally, um, and I'm looking forward to basically not talking at all during this one and just doing a lot of listening, uh, trying to comprehend um, and go on from there. Uh, this is going to be focusing on the topic of race and athletic training uh, specifically um, with everything that has been going on recently and what has happened in the past. Uh, this seems like a conversation that should be had and then continues to need to be had. Um, and I'm hoping that we can continue to do that moving forward. So without me talking anymore, I'd like everybody on the panel to introduce themselves um, and just kind of give their thoughts on the state of athletic training in regards to this topic. And we'll start off with Ryan because you're in the upper left and we'll go from there. Sorry, I had to figure out how to unmute myself. Um, my name's Ryan. I'm, probably the newest athletic trainer on here. I graduated in 2017. Um, 
worked a year in the high schools and worked a year at the collegiate level. And now I'm in nursing school full time and I graduate in December. And then um, state of raising athletic training right now, it's, I don't feel like we'll have to say this very many times, but it's overwhelmingly undiverse. And I think as we go along through this, we'll chip away even more at why it's so undiverse. Crystal, you're kind of the next in line. All right. Hi, guys. I'm Crystal. Um, I've been a certified athletic trainer for 10 years. Um, I'm currently in Houston, Texas at the secondary setting. Um, like I said, I've been there for 10 years. Um, I worked as, as a GA and then I went to Mississippi where I experienced systemic racism for a year um, and then I moved to Houston. So in regards to race and athletic training, um, just some background, I was one of two black students out of six who graduated from their um, athletic training program. And I was the only one that continued on with the profession. Um, and besides my classmate, I really never saw a black AT until I went to NATA in 2012-ish, I think, when I was in St. Louis. And that was also the first time I found out, found out about EDEC. Um, and that there were other black ATs, of course. So, and I was 23. So that puts that in perspective. Mercedes, you're kind of next up on the video screen. Okay, I'm Mercedes and I've now been certified nine years, um, working as an athletic trainer for about eight years and I've been in the middle school, high school, and collegiate settings. Um, currently, I'm in the collegiate setting and I can honestly say that I personally have not experienced any racism in athletic training from the workplace it's been more of individual racism um outside of the workplace but in the workplace it's been more of probably those racial microaggressions that people are not aware of um in terms of you know oh i might wear my hair down or i might wear it curly and it's oh look at your hair like let me touch it or you know how does it get like that those sort of things that are really subtle that people don't pick up on and you know as a african-american woman we kind of have to feel those things and let people know that you know we are diverse and we're not just cookie cutter like everybody else but um hopefully athletic training can improve in terms of diversity um i think we have the opportunity to do so and it's honestly going to start with us educating others about what we do and how we need to recognize diversity and cultural competence. Susan? Hey guys, um, my name is Susan Ta. I, I actually am equally young with you then, Ryan, because I graduated in 2017. I went straight into industrial, the industrial setting. I've been there ever since. Um, I love it. I just love having hundreds and hundreds of people um, that I get to deal with in the span of a week. The facility I'm at right now is about uh, 16 to 1700. Um, so the team is large. Um, as far as uh, the status of race and athletic training, um, I would say that 
while I kind of agree with Mercedes that there isn't a lot of overt um, racism really besides, I mean, I've had some educational experiences, which I can talk about that later, which I mean, there, there's a hashtag going on called Black in the Ivory right now that I know is a thing on Twitter, people talking about their experience of becoming educated um, as a Black American. But as far as within the field, I think we benefit from the fact that we usually work by ourselves in really small teams of, as athletic trainers. So we kind of get to know each other on an individual level. And that makes that kind of generalization kind of hard for us because you know the other athletic trainers that you work with. Um, I would say that the main thing I would say about our field specifically is that we haven't really embraced diversity. So that's kind of the real difference to me. It's not that we're against it, but we have not embraced it as a tool to give the best care possible and um, to really make sure that we make everyone feel comfortable um, that we meet and that we interact with and that we give care to. So I think that is really the main problem is that we're pretty tight-lipped almost like we're afraid to ruffle feathers. And that kind of makes me wonder whose feathers are being ruffled by the idea of embracing diversity, embracing, you know, the reality of our society and kind of being a leader in that field. Um, so I would say that's more it, that um, we're kind of dipping our toes in when we should really be jumping into this and, and being leaders. I'm going to speak for Austin since he's probably not going to pop on in terms of being new. He just passed his BOC this spring and yeah, hasn't yeah, actually, his first job yet. So he might be the youngest in that regard. Yeah. I have you both beat. So um, but, continuing yeah. with introductions, Mike. Um, hello everyone. Um, thanks Joel for having me. Uh, my name is Mike Watkins uh, from uh, originally from New York, living in Philadelphia now. Um, I've been certified for five years, um, been in the athletic training um, world since 2008, so it's had a very long journey. Um, right now, I currently work in uh, for, as a community athletic trainer, so I work as my own business, um, does athletic training as well as group fitness to the community um, here in West Philadelphia um, and surrounding areas. I also do virtual classes. Um, in terms of where uh, my background, I came from Division One athletics, so uh, working, uh, went to some schools in the Big Ten, you know, uh, SEC, uh, American Conference, um, worked also with some club sports. Um, so my bulk of my work was really with uh, college elite athletics. Um, was fortunate to work with some really amazing teams. Um, just for me, it the more I embrace my identity as a queer black man, um, the more difficult it became uh, working in the athletic training uh, world. Um, I constantly had to deal with either um, racist and or homophobic comments from either staff members um, or just athletes. Um, and so I guess definitely just one thing, and because I agree with so many what everyone said so far, um, but at least for me, there's the intersectionality of being both uh, black and queer as a man. Um, and so having that um, really plays a difference, uh, especially um, in terms of uh, homosexual men who are out in athletic training, there's very few. Um, I, the only uh, person of color athletic trainer that I ever had was 
um, a black man who I kind of looked up to at my undergrad program. And unfortunately, one of my last days, he told me I would never succeed because of my personality. So I've unfortunately dealt with a lot of racism and homophobia. Um, it's all settled under professionalism. Uh, and so for me, I just kind of think it's a little disappointing, the state of athletic training right now, um, because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and it's being done in a very kind of slow, forced manner. Um, but I'm trying to be hopeful that there will be um, continued efforts to kind of make changes. Andrew? Hello, uh, my name is Andrew Young. I'll bring a unique perspective because I am from Barbados. So I was not born in America. I'm a first generation college student. Um, I've been in some form of athletic training for six years as, for, sorry, for 10 years, but for six years I've been at LAT. I've been certified in athletic training for two years, graduated at, in 2018. I've been to two grad schools. I've had a long journey of athletic training. So I've been to two grad schools. In one of my grad schools, I experienced what I would call systematic racism. And it's something I've had a discussion with my cousin who went to Stanford, who experienced his own systematic racism. And he had to break it down to me. But also with, at that school, there was a cultural competency class. And within that class, they had this book that was written in the 1800s or 1900s. And the book was so stereotypical. It talked about black people, ate pig feet, and they were loud, but they don't, mean, they don't mean anything with their loudness. And they're pretty much saying that we eat watermelons. The, the stereotypical things you would see on TV back in the day on the cartoons and stuff that happens here in America. Uh, so the, these are where my experiences come from. Uh, I had to, I ended up leaving that school for, but due to reasons of my own, but that played a part into it. And I graduated from the University of Houston, which I think God willing was one of the best decisions that, and things that ever happened to me in my life. And then Brandon, I know you were in your car earlier and the audio might not have been connecting. So if, if it works, please introduce yourself. <laughs> um, greetings and salutations, everybody. My name is Brandon Cheesler. I am an industrial athletic trainer here in Rosenberg, Texas, currently reside in Houston, where it is currently 96 degrees in Houston. Um, I've been a certified and licensed athletic trainer for nine years. Um, that is up, that is down. But um, I got my foot in the door in industrial athletic training and graduate school in 2013, and I've stuck with it ever since. Um, again, it has ups and downs. But more so, I would say, um, as far as the intersectionality, I do an experiment of color and am an athletic trainer. Uh, and there is that intersectionality of being a queer man and also being of color. Uh, I would say that I definitely experienced uh, systematic racism in one of my industrial jobs where it's more so, I think a lot of people have touched on microaggressions um, and it's not necessarily intended to be um, harmful. However, it is very, very uh, damning to say the least. Um, and sometimes you don't feel like you have that safe space to talk about it or where to go, you know, to talk to anybody about anything of that nature. So uh, it's pretty hard. I mean, it's, it's really hard. I've worked in the high school settings as well. Um, 
Now I've heard some of the comments from some of the students. I've heard some of the comments from some of the coaches. And again, when you don't feel like you have that safe space to actually talk to anybody or who you go to as a resource, you kind of just bottle everything up and you just take it on the chin and you just go with it. Um, and that, you know, can affect your job. It can affect uh, a lot of the things that we don't talk about, especially in the black community, and that's mental health. Um, but from this from this discussion, I'm really looking forward to hearing from uh, what everybody's perspective is. I want everybody to learn from, from this. Fantastic. Uh, thank you again for all of you guys, uh, everybody for just being here. Uh, we'll jump right in. Um, first kind of topic or question I had on it was very open. So whoever wants to jump in, please do. Um, what issues of racism occur in settings athletic trainers work in? Um, and then we, which we, you guys have kind of touched on in some of these introductions and then what role can athletic trainers in general play in addressing um, and combating those issues? And this could be, from what you mentioned with the people that you're serving in terms of through your job or honestly I'm a lot very curious about it from just like the coworker or the hiring process or things of that nature so I don't want to turn this into me calling on people so I don't know if somebody wants to just unmute and go and then we can kind of play it out by there well I can start that if <laughs> perfect um so you said um as far as within our settings specifically talking um one big thing that i would say is uh diversity up the chain um whether it's intentional i wouldn't say that it's really overt racism whereas more of it's a subconscious situation where you're more likely to mentor or help someone that you have something in common with and you're more likely to see yourself in people who are like you and so if you look at kind of our leadership and even and i know like a lot of the governance and stuff is um people can put themselves out for those but the higher up the chain you go, the less and less diversity you have. Uh, this is the same everywhere. Athletic training is not an exception to that. Um, as far as what can be done about that, specifically talking about this area I'm choosing to speak on, would be um, I, uh, bosses and um, people who are higher up choosing to mentor people that they might not even have as much in common with because it's not so much that we don't want to have those roles that we don't want to um, occupy those roles or have more responsibility. A lot of it is being coached or being able to have the opportunity to learn about those positions. You wanna be qualified, but at the same time, people aren't willing to qualify you if that makes sense. So choosing to groom people who may not look exactly like you or who may not be you know, what you're, what you would typically think is oh they're like me and i can put them in my role but picking people who aren't exactly like you i feel will get us a little bit more diversity there and just being able to groom us for leadership too um if that makes sense so i think that that's one thing that's kind of been a gripe i feel like and has led to a lot of the lack of diversity um just in our profession overall
other thoughts? Yeah, one thing um, that I was just thinking is that, um, and uh, I'm sorry, I believe it was Amber, no, Susan, uh, that was touched on it earlier um, about the lack of diversity. Um, and my thing is not so much that there's a lack of diversity, but just there's such a terrible lack of inclusion. Um, I think the biggest, one of the th big thing is like diversity is bringing people to the table, um, but there's inclusion is actually letting them be at the table and feel comfortable. Um, and I think there's a, a really, really big issue and big problem with inclusion in, in a very broad spectrum because unless you are cis, heterosexual, and white, you are not feeling included. Um, the amount of times, uh, and especially depending on what sport you're working with, if you're only working with one sport, so I've worked uh, gymnastics, softball, um, volleyball. So I was very rarely, uh, it was usually one or two other black athletes on the team and then just myself. So there's still the inclusive nature um, that I think is kind of uh, lacking. Um, and I, I totally hear the, your, your take on uh, grooming people, but I just, my, my caution is that as someone who's like un, been in those high elite spaces, um, that it doesn't go really well um, because they're grooming you in a way that is on their culture um, and that it brings a really big thing onto respectability politics and inclusion of not inclusion or thinking of other people's cultures in terms of how response things or what things are done. Um, and in many ways, things can be turned on uh, in a different uh, situation or misunderstood. Um, and I've seen countless times where uh, if someone didn't necessarily have the same opinion as a, a professor or a program director, that they would then be sh uh, like just jousted. Because, and I think a huge issue within the athletic training community is that it's, it's really gossipy and very catty. In a time like everyone just talks about each other um, and it's for an organization that really prides itself on professionalism it really lacks in that um, because when you go to a con at least when every time I go to a conference everyone is just talking about did you hear this and whatnot and so um, there it needs to be a little less of that and more actually uplifting and wanting to build other people up and not looking at people with differences and coming from different backgrounds and experiences as, oh, that's the poor kid, or oh, that's the kid who doesn't know anything, um, and really actually foster opportunities and actually um, be of assistance and take yourself out of the equation um, for those with privilege. And privilege is a very broad spectrum because a lot of people have privilege. Um, e myself, even though I'm a queer man of color, I have heteronormative privilege. Um, in the fact that I can walk and I can be very hetero passing before I dyed the hair at least. Um, so that we all have privileges and just kind of knowing that and taking ourselves out of it. Um, in my business, I work with a lot of trans uh, and queer individuals who've never felt safe to ever go into a gym or to a physical therapy space. And so even just by working with them, I have to step out of my privilege because um, the privilege I've had even just working in the access to athletics and to uh, athletic and athletic training education, um, it really is allows you to give back and kind of step out of it. 
You're not talking about AT Twitter when it comes to gossiping, are you? I I didn't I you know there's just lots of I said uh, it. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I'll own that. I said it. No, I. But hi, AT Twitter. I'm sure they, they're. I've maybe even talked about or saw from one or twice. Hello. <laughs> right. Right. Um. Anybody else want to jump in on this broad topic? If not, I kind of have a question that comes off of it based on what some of people have been saying. All right. Just kind of jumping into that question. Um. In a place like where I work, it's a D3 school in Wisconsin in a town of 70,000 that is not very diverse. Uh, the university itself is not very diverse. Uh, we just had, I believe this past year, they said 10% um, of the, I don't know if it was the entire student body or the incoming class that was um, of a diverse background. And that was the most diverse class ever at this institution. Um, you know, in again, smaller town, Wisconsin, how do we work on creating more diversity there? Because, and I, I thought about how to say this and if it comes out wrong, I apologize, but it's not meant to, like, I would feel, you know, as we're trying to promote this out there, is there an incentive is probably the wrong word or something that would potentially draw someone to that institution or to that, to the city that isn't very diverse, which is, you know, it's kind of a hard problem in terms of, you know, how do you make it more diverse if it's not very diverse to begin with? So thoughts on that, on how, you know, staff, athletic training staffs around or businesses or whatever it may be can help increase diversity or what that would look like to have you come to a place that maybe isn't so diverse. I don't have an exact thought per se, but it just made me think of the story of when I first got out of grad school and someone from Alabama called and they're like, hey, we have a high school job for you in Alabama. And like I said, I'm from Ireland and I came in Texas. What I heard about Alabama was like, don't ever go there. So as soon as he called that and said like, hey, we have a job for you in Alabama, would you like to take it? I immediately said no, because I'm thinking about my livelihood. I don't want to go down to Alabama. I don't know anyone in Alabama. I don't feel safe enough to go to Alabama. And that's still some parts in Texas. I would not go to some parts in Texas because I don't feel safe. So I think the thing with to make someone feel safe when they get there so they were able to do a good job, I think there's, the incentive would be to make someone feel safe. And money is always good, honestly. <laughs> Well, and because that's kind of part of my question, like, so I work at UW Lacrosse, like, unless you're in the D3 world, you probably have never heard of it, or you sit there and you hear UW and hear lacrosse and think I just worked the sport of lacrosse, which is not the case, and I've had to explain that more times than I care. We do have women's lacrosse now, so yes, we have lacrosse, lacrosse. Um, we're proud of that. But, you know, you had mentioned the money, is it with all keeping things equal, which I don't know if that's the right way to do it. You know, if it's, what does that look like in terms of fair market? Cause I know we just hired two full times uh, this past year and in going through it, I believe we only out of 80 applicants, we maybe had one or two diverse applicants in that pool. Um, and so, you know, it was posted on NATA and we put it out to as many places as we possibly could. 
but other thoughts on that? Well, one thing that's kind of popped up on med Twitter, AT Twitter, med Twitter, um, has been, you know, when you're interviewing anybody for a position, what are you doing to be anti-racist? What are you doing to be anti-homophobic? What are you actively doing to create diversity in your own self? Because you need, we're going to have to create a diverse environment before people that are diverse truly feel safe in that environment to begin with. I think it's going to be an easier battle if we restructure the way everything feels and is versus, you know, let me get as much diversity in as I can right now. It's going to take a lot more layers to it than just jumping in. Like you really have to break down to those questions that right now a lot of people don't want to answer. It's, oh, I'm not for racism. I'm not homophobic. Okay, well, you have to go further than that. What are you actively doing to be anti-racist and what are you actively doing to be anti-homophobic or transphobic or anything else? I'm going to touch on that. So you two make a very valid point. Um, One, what are you doing? And then two, safety. Um, Safety always comes first. Um, And for me, I grew up, I am from South Carolina, so I know all about the whole south, southeastern region of, you know, the country. And the main thing, the main thing about it is simply, is simply this, you know, what are you doing to protect me? I don't look like you. I might not even sound like you. But if I am to sign my name on the dotted line for however long, if it's an apprenticeship, an internship, if I'm there for a graduate assistantship, if I'm there to sign my name to work, if you want to retain me, what are you doing to save me, basically? I've always been taught, at the end of the day, the bottom line is what's in it for me. You know, um, there does need to be some sort of, you know, diversity training. There needs to be, I've always, I've always grown up with the watch your tone, make sure that you look a certain way, make sure that you act a certain way. And it's like, well, what is the certain way? You can look and talk any certain way, but at the end of the day, like we look different and there are going to be cultural, not say discrepancies, but there's going to be differences amongst all of us. So how do we bridge that gap and how are we able to actually and meet somewhere in between? What have y'all had in place? And then maybe pick, you know, the incumbent's brain and say, you know, what would you like to see? And maybe by them expounding upon that, they might be able to actually say, oh, well, we have X, Y, and Z, and this is what it looks like. And not just lip service as far as, oh, we have something in place just to have it in place. No, actively be a participant. Be an active listener and also be an active participant in diversity training. Um, I think those are both great uh, inputs. Um, One thing I will say is that uh, I've actually heard of Lacrosse, Wisconsin, um, one of my uh, like mentors actually is a graduate of UW Lacrosse, so I remember okay. asking about them in Lacrosse like 10, 12 years ago. So, um, and I'm also familiar with the Midwest because I have a partner who's from Central Minnesota. So, okay, uh, I understand the the lack of color in those areas. Um, the biggest thing one I would just say that would help getting a different staff is. And one of the things it sounds like you're already doing is kind of doing the work to look for it. Um, I think, and what you've done sounds great, but even taking it a step forward 
and actually actively asking and, and being honest saying, hey, do you, are any black or brown uh, athletic trainers that you have would really love to, to open and make it a safer space or make things a little bit um, diverse and inclusive? Um, I think that's on the search part, um, but I do think, and to what everyone was saying is making everyone feel safe. Um, I think there's an honest factor that you have to be honest at the end of the day and say is that you can't guarantee that they will always be safe with them there because you just have to be honest about the situation, about what is going to happen. But it's also just being transparent and saying, but I'm going to do my very best to listen and protect you at all times. Um, and I just say that as someone who grew up in Long Island, New York, and went to school in the rural south of the armpit of Florida. And so um, the biggest thing is that you should listen. And so when they get in um, to different parts and they actually come into your space and something happens, you should listen to them. Um, don't, there have been times where if you are speaking um, and they're afraid to go to a school or a place because they know it's a little bit further out uh, on the sidelines and they're a little uncomfortable, listen to them and maybe send another athletic trainer, even if that means you or someone else who has a kid have to sacrifice a night at home. If it's, that's going to make the, the feel safety, it's going to be a lot better because I've been <laughs> into some really rural sidelines and I've heard and seen some really just uncomfortable stuff. And if there are ways that, uh, leaders can protect those staff uh, staff members because um, those are your peers um, and do those kind of effective steps to do it. Um, and in increasing salaries, I just think is general overall should just be happening. Um, but I mean, that seems to, that's a conversation every hour. Really. <laughs> Absolutely. Anybody I, else? Oh, go ahead, Susan. Yeah, um, I will add that I agree with everything you guys are saying. So like you were saying, Joel, that you're trying to be more diverse. There have to be safeguards in place for when you accept that diversity. I feel like a lot of programs or a lot of employers just try to throw bodies at the situation and just try to get, you know, diverse people in there. But then what happens is these diverse people get there and they have no safety net, they have no safeguards, they have no support. So you're basically convincing someone to like give up their safety net, give up their support wherever they live or where they are and come somewhere new. Um, and I know that's something I experienced very heavily in my athletic training um, education program because I came from an immigrant family. I also, Andrew, was not born here in the U.S. I was born in Cameroon, so I understand that side of things. But I came from an immigrant family. Um, I was paying my way through school and taking loans and doing other things. Um, just when I got to school and realized how many of my non-diverse friends were like, yeah, my parents are paying for my education. Is that not normal? So that was also, that's also part in that talk about getting proper pay because some of us can't really afford to not be getting paid enough because a lot of us don't have either historical wealth or just that kind of idea where it's really common to have that money and send your kids to school or things like that. So it's not an option for us to make less because of the amount of loans. But I was also working through my program and I would say if my program director was not anti-black 
she was anti-wealth. And that was a big problem. So I remember at one point when I had a class where I would finish my shift at one of my three jobs that semester at 9am and class started at 9am and I'd have to wait for the person coming to replace me and grab my backpack, dash across campus. And I remember at one point, because I always had all the materials done, everything was read, so it wasn't an issue. But she was like, yeah, you can't, you need to be here at 9am. And I said, I try. I have a job. I have to finish my job and come here. And she looks at me and says, well, that's not an excuse. And actually, you're not supposed to be working if you're a student in the athletic training program. And I remember looking at her and being like, oh, will you pay my bills then? Because Sounds just like my program director. <laughs> yeah, it was honestly, and that continued. Our program coordinator actually was very understanding and he was really wonderful because I was always on top of my work. And I remember when in our last year in the program, you go to all the directors and you say like, they basically tell you what they think about you and they, they tell you what they think about you as an athletic trainer. And one of the main things I heard from them was, you're really bright, you're really smart, but this pro program director told me, you're, you're doing too many things at once. And I was like, these three jobs I have are not because I feel like not sleeping. This is me trying to help you be diverse. This is me coming to your program and showing you black people can do this too. Black people can be successful here too. And you're making it as difficult for me as possible. So whenever I look at programs who want more people of color or want, you know, the LGBT community to be there too, you need to make it where they can be comfortable being there. Not that they're going to give up everything to help your program look better, but that you're going to give and you're going to make a home that they want, um, that they feel welcome in. Yeah, and I will just add to that because, and I love every single thing you said, and I echo all of your feelings, Susan, because um, the what program directors would always say to me, just when working, it is just like these are things that I'm doing to to save myself to be able to pay for school. Um, I sorry that I don't have my classmates that just can go home and and study all things and when they're requiring us to go to these conferences, that costs a lot of money to do it. And I do not have my parents to call at all. What do you want me to do? So um, it was, oh, it's always so frustrating to hear that um, when that would happen. And it's at the same time, I'm kind of grateful that we have this platform in a way because it allows us to even hear these similar stories that unfortunately um, so many of us are having. Um, which is just really unfortunate. Um, and I will say, especially just to speak on making environments safe for um, LGBT, if you're not in a big city, it's really just gonna be really difficult to make it safe at all. Like, and I, that was one of the reasons why after school, like a lot of, I remember a lot of the programs and things that I wanted to do that were better, were gonna be and more in rural areas. And I was just like, I don't have time for that. And I wanted to be in a city. And so um, there's, there, to, there's a balance. And I, I really agree too with Susan is that what are the organizations or offices going to do for them? Because at the end of the day, any marginalized person who's coming to a rural area is sacrificing way more than any of their uh, white counterparts. 
And so you touched on a very valid point of part as far as like working and still trying to make things work. Um, I have definitely been there. Um, if anybody understands, like, I don't necessarily know if anybody else in here is Greek. I am Greek. And I remember there's a certain um, dedication you have to have in order to go Greek. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and I remember there's, a, there's not many people that are in athletic training before me that went Greek and the ones that did go Greek, their grades fell off. And I just remember having that heart to heart conversation with my program director. And I said, listen, I can't give you all the details about what's going on. I said, I've definitely been falling asleep in class a little bit more than off than normal. However, I get my work turned in on time, if not early. I make A's and B's. I said, I've turned this whole thing, this whole collegiate experience for me around. I said, I just want to let you know what's going on. I mean, and she told me, she was like, I think that's stupid. Um, and and all, honestly, I was like, you know what? I told her, I respect your opinion. I said, but I'm going to show you better than I can tell you. Um, I had a very, very good GPA that year. Um, I definitely pledged and I went through that entire thing but I think it goes back to certain things that you see in the black community that you don't necessarily see especially especially being a member of a black Greek organization um that's a lot of time and dedication and it's darn near unheard of to be Greek and to be an athletic trainer so you have you literally have a dedication for athletic training which basically is a job in undergrad and then you have this obligation and so you have to find a way to make them work and so I've always found a way to make them work in undergrad and even in graduate school but it's just certain things that you look for in your collegiate experience that sometimes you feel like you're robbed from because you definitely chose to do athletic training yeah I definitely was robbed I always wanted to be uh, in a Greek organization and uh, just at my school, it, or it, even I, my undergrad, I didn't get to have the friendships that I wanted because um, when I got there, I was the one black person in a class of 14 white or Latinx uh, passing, which whole other <laughs> discussion. But um, there was no, on, the only friends I would have would be athletes um, and or I talked to. And then, but if I wanted to go, they would invite me places and you can't do anything because I'd be so afraid if I'd be caught or something like that. Um, because, and also knowing that like me as a black person, I'm not gonna get an extra strike like uh, Johnny Baby Sui Sue or so whatever her name was, <laughs> get, can get a pass for things um, because we, we only get one strike. And what is, Again, it's like to hear we all will do at the end of the day what we need to do to get through. But I think that's where it's just like, it's unfortunate that there's so many of the small things that we people have to do to get through just in order to kind of even wear that ATC badge. Yeah, I'll add one more thing about, oh, Andrew, are you about to speak? I was, but you can go ahead. Okay, I was just gonna um, add one more thing agreeing with both of you guys that um, um, it really, like you said, getting A's and B's. One of the things I was told in my senior meeting was we see you get B's when you can get A's or sometimes you get an A minus where you can have an A plus. 
and any educator or program director, anyone who would ever think to say that to a student, I would just really rethink that because what you don't know is the mountain of stuff that student has to do when they make that decision that I'll pick up an extra shift and I just won't study as hard for that because I'm already doing well enough. So for you to look at that student and say, well, I think you should have gotten an A plus in my class instead of an A minus is just really insensitive. And that's the kind of, I guess it could be a microaggression, but to me, that's an aggression aggression of, oh, I'm sorry, let me drop my entire life and my skin color and my gender and focus on your class. Absolutely. This A plus is like, so that's what I would say, especially with you saying, Joel, that you guys want more diversity. Like if you have a program that needs a ton of extra cost, like going to these meetings and things, or you have a program that would be impossible for someone whose life isn't a college student whose college is paid for and just has to wake up and be there, then you have to kind of really think about whether your program is a program that minorities can be in because minorities are gonna bring a lot of that baggage with them. And it's almost a disservice to them to try and be in that program and be unsuccessful, which is what happens a lot to a lot of minorities who go to college and end up dropping out or not being successful or not being as successful enough to get the beaming recommendations or the good grades necessary. It's a waste of their money. Um, so that's just something for programs to think about is that they're equipped to handle all of these issues that we've discussed here that we battle privately, but then we're expected to drop all of that when we step into the classroom. So I agree with everyone here and I feel like it starts on the ground up. It starts from the government on down. For example, like I send you the redlining link, the redlining link cause a lot of minorities to be set behind financially. And if you're set behind financially, you're pretty much starting running a race for a broken leg while the other person has two legs. So you have not to heal your leg, make sure you rehab well to run that same race that the person is probably at the finish line already. So in that instance, like we're saying, we all had to go to school. I remember I had to go to work and I, would, I work at night, overnight shifts at 24 hour fitness when I got off the bus, when I got out to go to six o'clock next morning, so be trying my 12 to six shift. When I got down on my 12 to six shift, I had to walk to the bus stop. I hadn't slept in, a, in 24 hours. So my phone dropped, it cracked. I got off, went straight to class. I fell asleep in class, but I was still able to, if the teacher called on me, I'll have the answer and I'll probably fall right back to sleep. Not because I wanted to fall asleep, it's because I hadn't slept in a couple of days, just trying to keep up everything. And I remember that some of those days I got off the bus to go back home and I just didn't know where I was going because I had not slept in so long. I was so disoriented and I just had to keep going. And to also to add on to the degree aspect, I also went Greek. But the, the thing is about Greek, uh, I'm going to say white Greek and black Greek because I, I, there is a difference. Even though we have learned some things from y'all in terms of Greekness, there's a difference because like the Greek world and culture is important to us because it's one of the ways that has made us have a better life in America. It's one of the ways that caused people to change laws. So if you go back and read about Greek, a lot of laws have been changed by people who went Greek. A lot of great things have been done by people who went Greek. A lot of things have been funded by people who went Greek. So the Greek life is a part of our culture that needs to be understood rather than, because I've had many people tell me like, oh, why did you do that? I was stupid. But I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know 
Greek to white people, they go Greek and at the college you're done. Going Greek for us is a lifetime thing. It's uh, like a way of connection where it's like, you went to Ivy League school, wherever you go in the, in the world and there's an Ivy League person, they will take up for you and they'll, they'll help you out to make sure you're safe. It's the same thing as Greek and that's part of our culture. So it's the same thing as asking us to go outside of our box into an area we're not comfortable in. It's like, how do you maintain that we're safe in that area? The safety comes from culture and history. Because if I feel I'm all the way in Barbados, which is predominantly black, black government, black everything, seeing black people my whole life, I actually did not see white people until I got to high school. So even in that aspect, even, even though I lived on the island, we all get along, but I just never saw them until I got to, to uh, high school. So even in that aspect, I know from Barbados that I should not go to Alabama unless I know somebody in Alabama. I know all the places I can go and be safe and not have to worry about anything happening. The only reason I'll go to those places is if I know someone there. If I don't, I will never venture into those places. And that's something as a black male, I think, or black person in general, like we have to worry about. It's like, hey, can we really go over here? And I know it may be the same thing for you, saying, so to speak, to say like, oh, can you go to, to the hood or, or whatever? But I still think if anyone goes to the hood, they don't really say anything to you. My, my sister lives in the hood. I walked through the hood to get to, to school. They never bothered me one bit. And I wasn't even from that area. They did not stop me. They didn't do anything. I walked back and forth for a book every day. And no, everyone's doing their own thing. But I've been in places to where, like, I've been walking and a lady holds her bag and runs away from me. If you know me, you know I'm not that type of person. I'm not an aggressive person. I'm always smiling. So I don't even know why you're running from me. So just just those things like I have to think about like, oh, well, well, people are gonna think like I play football, I play basketball, this person's running away from me, I'm about to rob somebody, I'm big enough. But I'm not that type of person. So those are all the the things that needs to be looked at and it needs to be broken down. It just can't be thrown into the situation of like here, here's a black person, here, here's a Latin person, here, here's a Hispanic person, here. You can't just throw these people in situations. You have to build structures in place and they have to have some fall around. Like the two movies I posted, if you look at the movies and you watch the movies, now that you're all saying, I just noticed those people have quote unquote handlers, somebody who walks around with them and makes sure that they're okay in whatever area they went to. Like Jackie Robinson in the Green Book, they both went to areas, but they both had white drivers. Our white counterparts, our people will take them around to make sure that they were okay and safe. And without Jack Robinson, there would not be black people in baseball. But without that other guy helping and being the ally, there would not be as many black people there in baseball as it is today. So I think safety and the construct of being safety and people who are in positions that are progressive thinking, because the baseball manager is very progressive. So people who are progressive thinking should be in those positions to lead the change of inclusion and diversity. That kind of brings me into my next point, but before we get, I just want to say for the record, I did not go Greek in college. The Greek that I was exposed to primarily focused around button downs, short khaki shorts and getting hammered. And I happened to work at one of the bar that most of them came to. So we didn't see eye to eye. Um, 
not that that's everything in Greek. I didn't investigate it, but that was my personal experience with very much the white Greek um, side of it in where I went to undergrad. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, this is very much speaking personally, and um, it's been a big kind of revelation for me recently. Um, but in conversations with others, you know, I always had of the opinion that, you know, I, I like people based on who they are. Um, personality means everything to me. If you're a good person, we're going to get along great. You like to work hard. You like to get things done. Things are going to go well. And the rest of it doesn't matter. If you're an asshole, we're just not going to vibe. It doesn't make a difference to me beyond that. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up with diversity in my life um, through middle elementary and the middle school and into um, high school and beyond. But um, you know, I thought that was a, you know, doing something because it wasn't, I wasn't outwardly having any direct feelings about, you know, racism or having any issue with it. We're, we're going to get along. We're going to get along. Uh, it has been abundantly clear that that is not doing something, um, in regards to all of this. And so really the question I had is I'm coming as the, I am, I would like to probably claim I am the epitome of privilege. I am a white male grew up middle upper class. I would argue my parents, you know, never wanted for anything. I, I did well. I, I worked a couple of jobs in college, you know, just to take care of all that, not to have too many student loans, you know, paid way through grad school and all that, but this isn't about me, but yes, very privileged. What from your perspective can people in places of privilege do to help advance and make things better. And then I threw the caveat on there. I I'm all for the tweeting of it. I'm all for the statements coming out about it. I think that's great, but it feels to me, it has to be something way more than that because that's it's fleeting in a way um, from what I can gather from my side and maybe Mercedes, since you haven't said a lot, if you'd like to jump in on this one, uh, we can get you in and then obviously open it up. Same thing with crystal. Uh, you guys have been, quiet so far, but wanted to give you the opportunity. Yes. Um, I would say with that, like I've been in situations where, you know, I know my white friends or white coworkers and I know their intentions and how they feel about me and racism and black people. But I need to know that in any dire situation, you're going to advocate for me and you're going to do that behind my back as well. Don't just do it to my face. And to know that if you hear somebody doing something right or saying something racist or you see them doing something racist to know that you're going to advocate for me and my people and call them out on it. That's going to be what I want to see moving forward. I don't just want to hear, Oh, I don't see color. Um, I have a black friend or, you know, this person was with me when I did this job. Um, just really knowing that you're advocating for us and being an ally and trying to make people realize that they do have racist tendencies or they can make racial slurs and they don't know it to make sure that you're going to just always be that person to be upstanding, not just because you want to be a good person, but you know, it's the right thing to do and you're going to be able to do it behind my back in front of me at all times. Like, I don't want my white counterparts to ever say, oh, I'm in a situation. I don't want to 
make this person be uncomfortable or I don't want my boss to know that I think that they're doing racist things. Like you need to call people out. Yeah, just picking back uh, off of uh, Mercedes, um, it's more than just tweeting about it. And sorry, my camera's off. I'm beating the little one. You're but awesome. yeah, it's more, <laughs> it's more than just uh, tweeting about it. Like we need to see action. Um, just don't do it because you don't want to get called out or dragged. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, everyone deserves to be treated equally. If you see it going on in your athletic training rooms, call them out. You know, that black athlete or that person of color is going to appreciate that a lot more than that massage you gave them. Also, um, educate yourself on the issues of injustice and systematic racism. Listen to the experiences of your black and brown peers. Acknowledge that although you can't relate to their countless years of black dehumanization that are still happening today, you know, you need to take action. Um, we want to be proactive about it, not reactive. And then also check on your athletes, especially the black athletes, you know, keep in mind their mental health, like um, Brandon mentioned earlier. Would you be able to maybe elaborate on, if you happen to have anything ready for, like when it comes to action, like what exactly that means? And if Crystal, you want to follow up on that and then anybody else um, piggyback off, off of that? Um, action as far as like, you know, in the athletic training room, you know, you hear those microaggressions from different athletes. You hear the, you know, as Mercedes mentioned earlier, oh, like, can I touch your hair? And, you know, I have an awesome coworker who he's a great advocate of, you know, racial slurs in the athletic training room. Like kids, especially high school kids, they use it so frequently and they think it's okay. And it's not, and even the black kids, like, you know, you have to let them know that that's not okay to do, you know, advocate for those kids that are getting bullied or are left out because, you know, they're a person of color or black. Um, and then it also starts uh, as far as um, through NATA. Like I saw recently that, you know, the NATA is pairing up with EDAC to um, go on their Twitter and you know, tweet out different um, ways that people can educate themselves themselves on social injustices and racism. And so, and I thought that was a good thing because, you know, at first we didn't see anything that was being done. And, you know, now they're teaming up with EDAC and, you know, tweeting out different things that people can edu educate themselves on. So I, I thought that was a really good thing as far as action. Brandon, you look like, oh, Austin, go ahead. And then yeah, Brandon had something uh, sorry. queued up, so too. I was, I was almost going to kind of piggyback off what you said there, Crystal, and about being proactive. Uh, you talked about checking in with your athletes, and I'm going to kind of preface this by saying that I'm also from Wisconsin. I'm from lacrosse with Joel. Um, I completed my athletic training education in one of the most segregated cities in America, which is Milwaukee which was something that surprised me until I got out to my clinical rotations. And you start to see that. So I guess this is a question for all of you, especially Ryan and Mercedes, who are a little bit closer to school as I was. I'm gonna be honest, I didn't receive a whole lot of uh, training when it came to dealing with issues like this in my classes. We all have those competency classes. We have the couple ethics classes, but this was something that wasn't touched on me. So I guess what do you all see as a collective, the role of athletic training programs and helping 
um, carry this forward? Uh, I believe every athlete, matter of fact, I believe every health profession needs to have a cultural competency class for a lot of reasons. Like I said, I touched on that was my racism experience. It was when I had a cultural competency class at one of the universities I went to. But the class like profiled all the races and our under our profile, because they obviously stood up to me, it was like we eat pig feet, we get loud and rowdy, and the list just kept on going. But that was the book they're teaching from. So now you as a person who's not black, you're going outside and you're going to based off of this. That's how you're gonna give your treatment based off of that. But also, we also need to to know other people's culture, because some cultures you're not allowed to touch people. Some cultures you're not. Some people have. I, I know in the Hispanic community they have someone they go to. I, for, I forgot what the name is for it, for it, but the person does massages and adjustments. But it's in their culture. So my experience with that was uh, last semester. I had to talk to the guy, the, the athlete, and explain to him, like, yes, I understand this is your culture, but let me find out more of what y'all do in your culture and the reasons why y'all do it, and then let's come by that for treatment. So let's, I'll, I'll work based off of what he said, because your parents are going to take you there anyway. That's your culture. I'm, I can't tell your parents not to take you there. That, that's their kid. So I had to sit down and talk to that kid and find out more. Not only did I talk to that kid, I asked other kids and Hispanic community on what the person was called and what they did so I can work better with that kid. So you need to find out more about people and why they do certain things. Because a lot of people have, especially foreign people who come here to play sports at big universities, who make other big universities money, they come here and they have different ways of dealing with stuff in terms of injury wise. So I feel like every health profession needs a cultural competency class I like legit cultural competency class and for someone to come in and give actual things in people's culture but not just bringing a black person and say well speak for your whole black race because just like white people and hispanic people everyone is different every single person is different and i judge a person based on how they treat me and the kind of spirit they have i don't really care the color of your skin or whatever but if you are nice down to earth person and I see that you're caring and you're giving and you're willing to work hard. And I'm not even talking working hard or you feel like you need to be at the job 24 seven. I'm talking about you take care of your business because that's a, a stigma against me also is that I'm from my island. So I'm always smiling and I move slow. I try to walk fast, but I can't. I literally try every day, but I move very slow. And everyone thinks I'm lazy. A lazy person does not work an overnight job to go back to school. I get up at four o'clock right now to do whatever I have to do. Even if I'm not doing anything, I get up at four o'clock to go run, to go work out, then study or, or do something. But the perception on the outside, because you don't know me per se, is I'm lazy because I move so well. I'm from an island. We take, we try to take everything slow and easy. That's how we live life. And that's a part of me. That's ingrained in me. That's my culture. But while I was at that particular school, they all thought I was lazy there's no lazy bone in my body. I even catch myself sometimes because the stigma they put on me is asking other people, am I lazy? And they all laugh at me because everyone knows I'm always doing a million things at, one, at some point in time. So I feel like every school, like they need to put that a part of every curriculum just as it is for anatomy and cultural competency because that would help you treat 
your athlete and the whole population better. Because right now, there's a whole thing about black people being more successful to having uh, coronavirus. Well, there's someone in the Senate who just said, well, is that because they don't wash their hands? Like how, like, how do you say that? How do you say that's a whole entire race that, well, they don't wash their hands? How about you look at the disparities that led up to this point that kept building upon each other to lead up to this point of them being more susceptible because they had preconceived conditions that led them to have corona? Like, how, do you, how, about you look like, how about you look at that? How about you look at the blame of redlining to put these people in bad situations? Or, for instance, like, I work in a district where everything is predominantly minority and everyone is first-generation students. So as an older athlete attorney in my district put it, we are the, the first contact of a healthcare profession these kids have ever seen in America. And we're sometimes the only really health contact because half these parents don't have insurance or they're here illegally. So they're just trying to make it to get a better life so they can get the American dream to help someone, to help their whole family out and become better. So that's why I said, I feel like every school needs to have a cultural comms class because there's stuff like that you're not taught in school and you're going to go out in the world and think like, oh, well, everything's the way it is like it was in school. It should be. No, you, you, you get your job and a lot of things arise that you never learned in school. And I feel like that's one thing that they need to come back is cultural comms. I want to skip over Brandon and then Mike. Um, Brandon, go ahead, and then Mike, I know you had something to say as well. I'm going to frame this because if I don't write these out, I can talk for days. Um, so I'm going to start this by saying um, the hardest conversations are the best ones to have, okay? Um, and I would say to your question, your original question, Joel, is like what can, I want to say like what can like say the privilege do? other than just tweeting about it and just posting it on Instagram, because we can all do that. You know, some people drag their feet when it comes to posting stuff because they don't want it to upset their brand or their aesthetic, which to me is very piss poor pathetic. Um, everybody has a, a, a group of friends, but I always say the more friends you have, the more enemies you have lurking as well. So you keep your circles tight. My circle is one of those people where I know that you're going to go to bat for me. And they've had very, very hard conversations with me because they've never really had to face this. Everybody on this call, think about the reason why we're having this conversation. This has been going on. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. But the fact that we have a global pandemic, we don't have any sports to distract us. We don't have any TV shows to distract us other than Netflix. We can barely go outside and we're quarantined. We are forced to basically sit in a dark room and face the reality of the truth of how messed up America really is. And so with that, that comes these hard conversations. Um, to Mercedes' po uh, point, check your friends. Check your friends. Um, I have several friends um, who are white and they ask me the exact same question. I tell them like this, there are places that you go that I'm not invited to. Pretend that I'm in the room. And if they say something that you know, because we've had these conversations that is offensive to me, you need to check them right then and there. They may not agree with you. However, they will know not to say it around you ever again. So I, I am all for checking your friends, when it comes to athletes, we're all athletic trainers. We sit on the sidelines, you know, me, PRN, but still sit on the sidelines and 
these people come from different backgrounds, just like we come from different backgrounds. Some people become lifelong friends. If you don't nip it in the bud at an early age, I promise you it will continue to go and fester and fester and fester. And those conversations are gonna get harder and harder and harder to have. Case in point, I parted ways my best friend of 16 and a half years from high school. Did not bat an eye. This is zero tolerance. This is zero nonsense for me. And if you're unable to have that conversation and you feel that your way is right, I feel my way is right, we can't necessarily have that, you know, that intersection, then either we take a break from it. But it becomes an issue where in today's society, we can't even sit down at the table and have a conversation without saying, okay, well, I'll agree to disagree. But then the other party will then continue to argue with you to point out why they're right and you're wrong. And so to me, it's just like, it's not worth having. You know, as you get older, your friends, your circles get, get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, to, you know, I'll say my counterparts, to my counterparts, you can donate. That's one thing to do. That's more so hands off. Um, I think if you really do have people in your circle that you're comfortable with talking to, talk to them. My, my actual best friend from college, we had a really hard conversation and I told him, I said, I think the reason why black people in particular feel so, they always deemed as the angry black man or the angry black woman is because we don't feel like we're hurt. We feel like we feel like that we've dealt with this for so long and we basically had to deal with this every day. We have to come to work with a smile on our face. We have to basically put on the good, you know, get on the good foot and everything else. But it's almost as if you're screaming into the void. And when you are screaming into the void for so long, you get frustrated and you get pissed off. And when you get pissed off, that's when you start to see that anger, that aggression and that rage. And then that's what everybody else sees. Everybody sees the reaction, but they don't see what provoked it. And so by doing that, I always say, be an active listener and an active participant. Um, and again, like I said, um, everybody is fighting a battle that nobody knows. So always be smart, I mean, be smart with your words, be kind with your words, and always keep a smile on your face because you never know how much ray of sunshine you just put in somebody's life. Well said. Mike? Um, sure. Yeah. So one thing I was just, uh, to tagging off what Brandon was saying, bringing joy, I was just about to mention how it's been so nice hearing Southern accents again. Um, that's been bringing me a lot of joy. Uh, I live in Philly, so I hear a lot of John and, uh, um, <laughs> not Southern slang. So, uh, that's a little bit of joy. Um, to answer kind of going back to like the questions like that Joel was posing, I think the one thing is, um, you and I this is even though this is not a time where we need to give white people credit Joel we I think to give a lot of credit to you um because by setting something an event like this having a platform to giving all of us different diverse athletic trainers of color a place to speak about it um that's going to be shared and for people to watch I think that is already doing something more than just tweeting um because especially anyone who's sat and has watched this or paid attention is really hopefully a little bit more committed to doing the work um, because they've had to listen to a lot of really passionate people speak. And so it's really important. I think that's the one thing is that anyone of privilege really kind of just take a step back and listen. Um, and really one of the things that I think need to change 
and athletic training and is just leadership needs to change. Um, the leadership is still old white men. And if it's not old white men, it is the uh, past. It is Karen. There are Karen. At every how many schools there is there a Karen? I don't know if you all see Twitter, um, but like a white woman who is just ready to complain about anything. And these are white women who then get positions of power, and the power suddenly runs through their head. And suddenly, anyone who does something that is not in line with what they agree with, they are typecasted as wrong. Um, and that's where just the lack of inclusion really kind of is a problem. Um, because if there was better leadership and leaders that were more diverse and inclusive, especially inclusive, there would be positive uh, lights. Um, I think, uh, especially University of Miami's athletic training program, um, I think they do really well and successful because Keisha Harrell uh, is on, I can believe, program director, clinical coordinator. And I've, just, I've met her firsthand in having a woman of color who, for example, just for me, I remember seeing her at a conference being like, wow, that is a woman of color in a leadership role. Um, in athletic training is one just inspiring and something to look up to um, but just in the fact that she's in a leadership position means she is able to educate those around her um, in a way that's going to be more inclusive because just by her being a black woman with and the things that she is marginalized against she's able to lead more effectively so I think leadership really needs to change um, and even though there isn't that even and there's a lack of uh, diversity in athletic training, but that should then make it really easy because there's not as many people you have to choose from for leadership positions. Um, and there's a lot of very well qualified uh, uh, athletic trainers of color that should uh, be work looking out to uh, be in leadership roles. And one thing I think NATA kind of fails on is like, I don't know, most of us, if we pay our dues, they have our in contact information. So um, the idea and wanting people that we need to reach out to them is that's still not doing the work. It, they need to reach out to, to us because if we go to NATA next month and or when it's, uh, time is lapsing, but if we show up then, then it's listened to. I think there's doing the step and that's why, again, just Joel, I give you credit um, for having this platform by giving all of us a chance to speak. Um, and, and really listen. Um, the other thing in just talking with cultural competency is you can have it. I had a cultural competence class in my program and it was mentioned for like two classes. And especially because again, it was taught by a Karen, it's just kind of overlooked and brushed upon. And they even make kind of sideways comments and things. And I remember going through that section, I was educating my peers way more than my, the professor did. And so I think it's more than just having cultural competence. It's bringing in like third parties, because if you're in these schools that aren't really diverse, it's really tough to have just some white person explain cultural competence. It's really doing the extra work and finding third party groups or organizations or programs within the school um, that can come and speak. So um, every, pretty much every school has at least a black student union. They can reach out um, and bring people into there and speak on that um, so that people can actually hear other stories. Susan, I wanted to turn it over to you. Thank you. Um, Mike, I feel like you're describing my program director. Um, mm -hmm. 
Maybe we, maybe they're twins. Oh, it was rough, oh, I tell you. But um, okay, so Joel, I'm gonna directly uh, address your question, and I agree. Like seriously, big props for really making this happen. Um, a lot of what we're saying is really uncomfortable for people to hear. Um, and there are going to be people who don't want to hear it and people who won't hear it, of course. They're very much in control of that pause play button. But it's good that it's out there for the people who want to know. Um, so two things. I agree with Brandon on the checking your friends. Um, when you're a person of privilege, in my personal experience, this is something I didn't know. Being an immigrant and coming here and growing up as a Black person, of course, I've never not been Black. So I don't know what it's like to not be black. Um, and when I got to college and I was dating my college boyfriend who was very white, very blonde haired and very blue eyed, um, he would actually realize racism that I didn't even know was racism because I had been treated that way my whole life. So something would be happening and he is like very agitated and very irate. And he's like, that was so racist. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, what was racist about that? So that's some place where people of privilege can see people being treated differently, where those people wouldn't even recognize it themselves. Um, so we very much depend on people who have that privilege to use it and be able to say, hey, that's not right, because I'm not even going to always recognize it. Um, I'm not even always going to always recognize it. And then the last part is... Um, that um, I know you had Eli on, you guys kind of talked about burnout a little bit. Um, recognizing burnout for people of color especially. I don't know if the rest of you guys agree with this, but with everything going on this past week, going to work, you just feel like my friend Trebrisa said, she's an athletic trainer um, in Dallas, that there's this big black elephant in the room and you're not comfortable saying what's going on and you're not comfortable saying how you feel but there's this level of stress and it kind of adds to the burnout. When I moved here to where I am in Texarkana, my harassment by police probably tripled um, from everything from getting harassed outside of a bar while waiting on an Uber while everyone else drove drunk out of the um, parking lot to having drugs planted on me by a Tennessee trooper to just madness. But when people ask like, hey, how was your weekend? You honestly don't feel comfortable bringing that up because you feel like you're going to seem like a black person complaining about things. And so you're like, oh, it was fine. But these things really weigh on our hearts. They weigh on our minds. They consume our thoughts, you know. We're not removed from the world when we go to work or when we go to class. And so while people are like, oh, my water heater broke and it ruined my whole weekend, people ask you, I'm just like, oh, everything's fine. Because you don't feel comfortable bringing that up because you don't want to hear them say, well, you must have done something. You don't want a negative response. And so it's better to just protect yourself by not saying anything. So if I would say anything to people of privilege, it's that if you are working with a, a person who is a minority, especially in this day and age, reaching out to them and saying, hey, do you want to talk about what's currently going on in the world? Like, I do support you. And if you ever want to talk about that, don't feel like you can't because you can with me. That would make, honestly, a world of difference because I haven't had anyone um, in my area tell me that. So I've been keeping it to myself. So I would just encourage that. Thank you for that. Um, I want to, again, kind of in the essence of time, just keeping mindful of that for everyone, especially as the week is winding down and whatnot. Um, 
don't want to cut anybody off, so we will ask a final question. But I just wanted to, again, thank everybody for being a part of this and coming together so quickly. I mean, this thing came together really fast, and I really appreciate that. Um, and also want to extend to everyone, and I'll reach out um, via email or Twitter or whatever it may be, uh, to keep this conversation going, whether we do small group episodes or just one-on-one of a topic of your choosing around everything athletic training related doesn't necessarily have to be around race and everything with that, but happy to have continue to have those conversations if you all would be interested and we can connect after the fact on that. So kind of like we did on the intro, um, I'd like to just go around and kind of get everybody's take on just what does being an athletic trainer mean to you? And that is wide open. So however you want to, um, go at that and then if you want to share anything in terms of how anybody if they want to get in contact with you whatever you're comfortable with sharing if you don't want to share anything that's your prerogative as well um and we'll kind of wrap it up with that so i will start off again with ryan you are muted still it's fine i just gasped a little because i don't know how to approach what does athletic training mean to you um that one's kind of a hard one. I Something that's kind of come up a lot in nursing, too, is just patient care in general and how you approach your patients. With athletic training, I think it's just you have to approach everybody as if you know nothing about their background. And you have to be interested in who they are as a person and what their background is to actually treat whatever's going on with them. Because there's so much of that, you know psychological aspect that we kind of all just ignore and you just treat the symptom and you know ankle sprain okay here's some tape here's some rehab we're done move on from it i think in athletic training it's a unique position to be around those people so much you spend so much time with them when i was in the collegiate setting those girls were like my second family i saw them more than i saw my boyfriend during soccer season so you oh and then ryan froze have to be able to can you hear me yep you you froze for a second okay Okay, great while in the middle of that (laughs) if you don't want to actually meet with them on who they are as a person then you're not really doing your job and then if you feel like i've said something important today i'm on twitter (laughs) fair enough and we'll link that up when we get to put in the episode or the what page together um mercedes um athletic training to me kind of going off of what ryan said it means um getting to know people and service to others compassion um a lot of people if you know me you know i want to know you as a person i want to know your why and you know that drives me to help you to get you to do what you want to do. So I think that kind of makes me as an athletic trainer unique because I don't just treat symptoms or injuries or whatever is going on. I want to get to know the person and how I can best help them not related to their athleticism. I want to know, you know, how can I help you to progress as a person in your profession, you know, do I know somebody that I can connect you with for your network um, so that you can be successful in life? So me being that advocate for them and maybe a liaison in some sort of way for their, you know, life goals. Um, that's what athletic training means to me. And if anybody wants to reach me, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. Um, what is my Twitter? Oh, 
uh, Memoria Vitae, I, I believe still. <laughs> we'll, we'll link it up and put, put that so people can find it easy. Um, Andrew. Sorry, I just got on a headline that was saying uh, Texas said uh, they should start teaching how slavery was a side issue to civil war. Uh, <laughs> um, Alpha training means to me, so honestly, let's be honest, I don't know, I think there's a lot of people's experience. I originally wanted to do athletic training because I want to do physical therapy, but I fell in love with athletic training because it was more, more about and I can do more things than rather than just sitting in an office all day and typing away at a computer. So, and also then I looked at it and realized this is something I could take back home to my country and help them out with their sports. Since a lot of athletes from the Caribbean come to the United States to like do track, honestly. So I, I looked at it as I was able to help more people and like all people, they want to do good for their country. So. I looked at it as I can use it to do good for my country. Um, I, I hope athletic training grows more because there's no reason for us as much as we can do to sit in one setting the whole time and actually be in that one setting. Like I was telling someone today that to me, it makes absolutely no sense that athletic trainers are not like a job in the military. So you know how you can go look in the military and you can find nurse physical therapy. There's no reason why athletic trainer can't say like, hey, I want to take this military and work for the military because we're supposed to be able to think our feet and treat injuries as we go on our feet. And I don't, that's one of the best jobs I think we're more valuable for. But that's why I said I hope we're able to grow more so we can use everything that we have learned. So I'm, I'm like very impressed with Mike and uh, I think Brandon and everyone and uh, Susan who do upside jobs of like college and high school because it shows like these jobs are out there but they're not very well advertised so I, I just hope going forward that athletic training can make the gap to these jobs wider so you can go have different choices like like every other field i didn't do pt so i could avoid organic chemistry that was my that was my reason <laughs> uh susan if, for that question athletic training to me i agree with that andrew so i'm gonna go off of that um mix of with the whole at for all movement athletic training to me is making healthcare accessible to people um especially for me working in the industrial setting and working with so many people so many of my guys have not been to a doctor in like 20 i'm like oh when was your last doctor's appointment 22 years ago <laughs> um and these are people with health insurance people just don't feel really comfortable going to see a healthcare um, provider. It's just not a part of their, you know, normal. So in very few places, do you have a healthcare provider just sitting there, whether it's on the sidelines or in your plant or courtside or in your building. Um, I feel like that's something we can provide and we can show you where to go. You know, we have ortho, I have orthos here in the city that I work with. We have family doctors that we're very familiar with, even nurse practitioners. So when you do have a problem that we think needs addressing, we can, I can send you to that person or encourage you to go to someone. So that's what athletic training means to me. It means learning everything about the people, the community you're embedded in 
and making healthcare accessible for them and not making them think it's some foreign thing um, that you only go to at the very last possible second, but that it's a normal part of life and that wellness and health um, are goals for forever, for life, not just something you keep until time takes it away from you. Well said. Brandon? Um, as athletic trainer, we all know this, we wear many hats. We are athletic trainers. We are sometimes revered as doctors, physical therapists, uh, psychologists, mentors, uh, mothers and fathers, um, guardians. That's what athletic training means to me. Um, again, thank you for even having me on this call. Um, I just honestly feel that athletic training has so much to, to learn and it has so much to offer. Um, Andrew, you are absolutely right. They're, they're not very well advertised um, as far as the jobs go. Like we should be killing it in the industrial setting and it definitely would help with some of that burnout in the secondary school settings and the collegiate settings because let's be honest, like we are human. We all have a life outside of work and if we don't have that work-life balance, then what are we doing? we're just working ourselves in the ground and we're making a, a decent amount of money or whatever you want to call it, but we can't even spend it. We can't even spend it. Or some of us, I'll just be honest, some of us can't be paycheck to paycheck because there is a disparity in some of the pay, the pay grades when it comes to athletic training. I mean, in the more rural areas, you are getting paid maybe a little bit more because you're in a rural area. So I would love to see how far athletic training can go. I mean, Let's, let's be honest, physical therapy started as a bachelor's program, actually an associate's program. And then it graduated up to an under, a bachelor's and then a master's, and now it's a doctoral program. So athletic training has now moved to a master's program. So we're moving that, but we need to see, like all of us continue to advocate for our, our profession and move that needle to say, hey, we need to have an equal amount of play on this, you know, an equal amount of pay on this playing field. So that was my two cents. That's my TED talk. And thank you for having me. Well done, Mike. Um, all right. Um, well, one, just thank you again, just for having me, um, to answer the question about being an athletic trainer to me, um, as critical as I sometimes am being an athletic trainer means everything to me. Um, it is my identity. It is who I am. Uh, when someone asks who I am, I always say I am an athletic trainer. Um, I, it is also my legacy. Um, it is something that I am able to give back. Um, there's, especially in the black community, they look at people like a doctor and while I'm no doctor being able to use my talents and the, my ability to heal. Um, and truly I'm great. So grateful for, um, athletic training for enhancing my ability to heal and giving that back to my, um, uh, family and communities. Um, I'm really grateful that right now I'm in a place where, um, because I it didn't want to stay in those in the lanes where you can't make money, that I'm doing my own thing. And so I've created my own business since January. Um, and I'm grateful to say that it has been thriving. Um, I was recently um, voted and nominated as one of the 15 uh, black fitness and wellness uh, people to follow in the city of Philadelphia. So. Um, it's been a really cool opportunity being able to do what I love the way that I want to do it and the way that I um, know that I can without the restrictions and barriers of frustrating bosses or overlooking peers. Um, I get to do what I love. Um, I have a community of people that um, buy into what I believe in and that's been really awesome and I get to 
take care of queer and trans people who have never been able to go into a, a gym before and they're able to not only uh, work out, but they're also able to help them with injuries. Um, just the fact that trans people have uh, so many postural issues, especially for any female to trans, uh, any person going from female to male, uh, because they have to do binding and even learning what our manual therapy skills and techniques, um, being able to use that. I'm, I've been so grateful for that. Um, and that's what through my business, I'm able to kind of do all of that. And it helps being in a very large, large city um, because I, there's a large community of people that are um, able to do, uh, uh, reach out for that. Um, in terms of where you can reach me, um, I'm at MWATS Fitness on all social media platforms. Um, if you don't want to follow me, that's fine. Follow my business. Um, so for that, that's uh, at Festive Fitness. I'll turn that off um, so you all can see that in there. It's at Festive Fitness underscore um, and, or just Festive Fitness on Facebook. If you all didn't get that, don't worry. I got another sign right here. Here's a plug. Okay. So that is Festive Fitness. Um, I, my biggest thing, and I've been saying it since I was eight, like seven years old, is to stay festive. Festive is my brand. Um, and so I really love it. So in telling everyone that we had this conversation was uncomfortable, stay festive. Fantastic. I like how everything was ready. That was perfect. Um, <laughs> Crystal. All right. Just piggybacking off of what everybody else has said. Um, being an athletic trainer, you know, being a leader and advocate for the profession, um, a safe place for others. I've worked in a Title I school, and so a lot, of the, a lot of times those kids, you know, just come to the athletic training room because it's a safe place for them. Um, being an educator, providing service, a counselor, like Brandon said, we wear many hats, a consultant, um, being mindful and aware of others, um, not just, you know, of what they came in there for, but of what they are as a person. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it, whatever it else said. <laughs> Perfect. It's hard with all these people, kind of, it all comes together and takes away some of the uniqueness of those answers. Well, I just wanted to thank everybody again for taking the time. Like I said, I'll be reaching out if you have any interest in doing another episode on whatever topic you deem that you want to talk to. And again, just thank you so much for being a part of this and for coming together so quickly.